of you know, we're in our Saint Series for the year. We do this every November. Um, November 1st, classically, is uh, All Saints Day. Um, and, uh, and we just kind of stretch that out. You know, it's the day before Halloween. All, all Hallows Day is originally called, and then Halloween, the day before, is All Hallows Eve. Um, but uh, we just kind of stretch All Saints Day for a whole month. We spend a month uh, looking back at people who have done this before and uh, people from the past who have lived well, walked well with Jesus, and kind of impacted the world in a, in a big way. One of my favorite series of the year. We do this every November. Um, and so this week's been kind of fun and humbling um, for me uh, as I prepared to preach about one of my absolute heroes, um, uh, maybe my greatest hero, which got me thinking about the concept um, of heroes, which is obviously a huge industry today. Um, Marvel has brought the hero, obviously the superhero, back into the mainstream in a very big and very lucrative way. Um, and, uh, and which has totally, like, rounded out my house's nerdiness, like, in a, in a fun way. Um, one of the best parts of having uh, a big family, and especially a family that stretches over 25 years, is it gives me plenty of opportunity to indulge in all of my own personal nerdiness, which is awesome. Uh, my oldest sons and I were, like, uh, old Western movie buffs, like, and... Uh, Especially John Wayne. We grew up watching, my kids grew up watching all the John Wayne stuff. And, um, and it wasn't uncommon back then to see us living in Kansas City, Kansas, right? My dad was city. All wearing cowboy hats and boots and like living out our Western fantasy in the middle of the city, um, looking completely out of place because we were total Western nerds back then. Uh, but as my kids grew, I was able to pass on kind of my Lord of the Rings nerd into some. I grew up reading Tolkien and loved it. And, that I became an adult and didn't know anybody else that loved it the way I did before the movies were out. So, like, there weren't nearly as many people that, that liked Lord of the Rings back then. So I was the only nerd dropping Hobbit jokes and things like that. And I was like, what's a Hobbit? How can you not know? But so I didn't want to of my kids who totally dove in with me. And, and uh, I was one of those people that was there at midnight on Thursday night for every opening. You know, I didn't dress up, but there was a few times I was looking at my closet like, I could totally rock, you know, a troll outfit. So, you know, but, um, but then I was able to pass on my Harry Potter nerddom to some of my kids. Um, I was a children's pastor when Harry Potter would be written. And so I had parents coming to me all the time, like, Sean, we could do this potion. And I was like, but I didn't understand which is which is. I wouldn't do it. I've never read it, you know, but I was just like, well, they don't read it. So then, and then finally I was like, you know what, it's kind of wrong of me to give advice on how you read the books. And I read them, and I was immediately hooked. I was like, this is amazing stuff. So I had a couple kids that went down that road with me. We became total uh, Harry Potter nerds. Um, of course, I've got some Star Wars nerds in my house. Uh, that came back around. No Trekkies yet. I'm still working on that one. I haven't given up hope. I do have some kind of general sci-fi nerds um, that do that with me. But not until my youngest, Esther, has I had a true, like, superhero nerd. Like, one of his very first words was Avengers. He didn't say it well, but it was like Avengers. Like, it was, and he's been, he went through a Hulk phase where everything was Hulk smash, you know, which is perfect when they're like a toddler. They just run around Hulk smash, like they look like Hulk. Even. <laughs> we went through a America, all one word, America phase. Iron Man phase, of course, where you would walk in the room and he would just go, like, and if you didn't know him, you had no idea what he was doing. He was like, he's, he's shooting you. But, um, 
the Hawkeye phase and, and everything else. But then still my little luck Avengers, but um, Asher is like totally in the world already. So, um, so I spent the week thinking about heroes, and uh, uh, and I realized that growing up I didn't have very many heroes. I didn't people except for football players. You like, you're the only real heroes I got. I wasn't super into movie stars. I didn't want to be a rock star or anything. Um, I don't remember idolizing people at all growing up, except for football players. I had certain football players that I just loved to. Um, I wasn't really like into the fame part of it. I just wanted to be able to play like that. I wanted to be able to do what they did and play at that high of a level. Which probably just wasn't known that they also got all the hot chicks. I probably would have been lost forever into football. But um, I just wanted to be able to play at that level. It's super amazing. So when I got older and I walked away from my football scholarship to pursue ministry, um, I knew I was kidding. Um, suddenly it wasn't, like, you know, all the football players that were essentially thinking. But again, I wasn't really drawn to the I remember uh, the first time I read C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man. Um, I was listening to it on cassette tape. Millennials, um, cassette tape for these things that we used to. <laughs> no, I used to listen to books on cassette tape. Um, that's how old I am. Um, and, uh, and I'm listening to C.S. Lewis. I'm in my truck, and I've got The Abolition of Man in. And I felt like the smartest person in the world for even being able to understand what he was saying. Like, I was tracking with him because he was unpacking some of it, and I'm like, you know, I'm really smart that I can that I can read this kind of epic philosophy and get it. And then all of a sudden it hit me, I literally paused the tape, and I went, he fucked this up nowhere. Like, I'm that smart for being able to understand it. How smart do you have to be to write it? Like, it was like, and for the first time ever, like, I was like, Blown away in place that watching two tall heads that not have passion to be in position. You know who I'm talking about. You just dated yourself. Um, but, uh, but literally, I was like, who just wrote that? Like, I feel smart for even understanding it. To write it? Not even. I don't, that's like a whole other world I could never even in a million years access. And so, I was like, suddenly a new hero. It's like, how smart do you have to be? write this stuff. Holy smokes. And so, this is really place, um, even though I still enjoy totally nerding out for sci-fi and fantasy and wild west heroes. My uh, real heroes are all thinkers. Like, the guys, like, feel like, if you put up some time, you can talk to you. Always some of these great authors of the past. Like, those are the ones I would love to sit down and have a beer with. Um, if I could, like, everybody's like, if I could go to the Holy Land, if I could, if I could go to the pub where, like, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and uh, those guys sat and talked about their writing. If I could just sit at that pub, I would be falling like a baby. I'd be the one guy sitting at the pub crying um, over his pint. Um, but uh, the top amongst my heroes, like at the very top, is today's saint, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, who lived uh, in the middle of the 20th century. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is best known um, for his book, The Cost of Discipleship, and for being a martyr. Um, in Nazi Germany for standing up against Hitler, um, which got him arrested, sent to a concentration camp, and eventually hung. Um, last year, I committed a week of our Saint series um, to talking about Billy Graham, um, and I was really concerned about that 
sermon because, number one, how on earth do you talk about such a deep and impactful career in one sermon like the one time? And number two, I felt like almost anybody in the room could probably come up and tell everybody stuff I didn't know because, you know, so many people knew Billy Graham and knew about Billy Graham and read about Billy Graham. So it felt weird for me to be teaching anybody about Billy Graham. I kind of feel that way um, about Bonhoeffer. I feel the same. I, I tend to... Uh, normally try to draw out saints like we did last week, uh, Nadia Kalo, um, who uh, may not have been super famous, uh, but who like stood out as giants in their own little story and, and made a huge impact in their part of the world. Um, maybe saints that we've never heard of you know, in the history books, but who need to be talked about, need to be um, kind of passed on. But this week, I'm going to tackle a giant. Um, and I'm doing this Partially because, to be honest, there are very few theologians who um, have had a greater impact on my own personal theology uh, than Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, and so to know more about him is to know more about why we do some of the things we do here at Open Table Community Church. Um, but also, I think Dietrich has a lot to say to our world today. I think that he was um, kind of out of place and time. He, he has a lot uh, that we need to learn from him um, in this day and age. Um, so if ever there was a time to turn our attention back to this saint, I think it's, it's now. Um, so please, as we kind of dive into this guy's life, please know that I'm only going to scratch the surface. It, there's some great books on him. I've got a couple if you want to borrow them. Um, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm barely going to cover a, a quarter of it. Um, but more than anything, I'm going to be pointing out some of the things that have spoken to me mostly out of Bonhoeffer's life and why I think um, he's important today. We've titled this series Saints in the Storm, um, and anyone know, who knows anything about Bonhoeffer and his story knows that uh, this absolutely applies um, to this saint. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was born into the tensions of, uh, that preceded World War I um, and spent his childhood years in wartime Germany uh, during World War I, losing a brother in World War I. Um, he was raised kind of a true and nationalistic German and a highly educated, almost aristocratic German family. Um, and although war, you know, um, was definitely hard and had a deep impact on their family, um, he was raised believing war was a part of German life. It was a part of the German psyche. Um, and, and it wasn't necessarily a negative thing to die for the German cause was always seen as a, a huge positive um, and so part of being a good German was to believe in, in fighting to be a good German. Um, and it was a source of pride and, and belonging. So Dietrich was raised German Lutheran, as most Germans were at the time. And, uh, uh, and uh, his family uh, grew up around the scripture, but didn't go to church. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer didn't grow up going to church. Uh, his father was a scientist, and though he allowed uh, his wife to train the kids in the faith, saw no value in church attendance. Um, uh, though he didn't deter his, uh, the teaching of Scripture in his home at all, he just he didn't have a very deep faith. So Dietrich's mother uh, homeschooled her eight children. Um, not only did she use the Bible as kind of their primary text for uh, learning to read and, and literature, she often read the Scripture um, to her kids. But ironically, Paula Bonhoeffer also didn't uh, necessarily value church attendance, um, partially because uh, Lutheranism had kind of fallen into this. Um, it's kind of fascinating when you read some of the letters between Dietrich and his mom later in life when he 
became very, very passionate about church attendance. They would kind of debate it a little bit, um, this topic. But many Lutherans of that day um, believed that the true life of faith was lived in this razor's edge between two conflicting pressures. Um, in Reformed kind of Protestant theology in the late uh, 19th and early 20th century, there was um, two ways uh, to get the life of faith wrong. Two things you could get wrong. And it's kind of fascinating, so I think it's, it's neat to talk about. One was a works, what they called works-based. It was a works-based faith. Um, uh, and, and, uh, and I think it's, and the other was to live a piety-based faith. And I think it's important to talk about this distinction because we really don't have this. We kind of lump those together. They saw them as two very, very different things. Um, Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer wound up um, falling uh, um, in a totally different place on this topic than his mother, but um, when we say works-based, we generally think of uh, good deeds and living and obedience and things like that. So if we had a works-based faith, we, we tend to think it means working hard to be a good Christian. And if you work hard, you get more favor from God or more blessings or something. And, and some people, you call that works. They're like almost earning your, your standing with God to be a good Christian. Um, Reformed theologians at the turn of the 20th century didn't call this works. Uh, they called it piety, um, which, was, which was different. And, and there was many piety movements at the time, including Methodism. Um, uh, and, and now, <coughs> and, they, but, uh, and there was all other piety movements at the time. Um, and and the, the reformers, the Reformed theologians at the time considered that uh, to be wrong also, to but they didn't call it works-based. Works-based, to a European reform thinker, was to do ritualistic religious things. Um, so uh, it's not so much don't lie, don't steal, you know, be a good person, help the poor. That was piety. Works was make sure you go to confession, make sure you say your rosary. You know, they were religious works you had to do um, to, to stay in God's good favor. So they would say, have you been blessed by a priest? Have you taking communion. Those were the religious works. Piety was to do good deeds out in the world. Two totally different things. So the Methodist movement, their focus on right living and especially social justice. Um, and the Catholics focus on penance and rosaries and confessions were all temptations pulling a Lutheran away from the simple, rational faith in Jesus. Um, and so they believed the, the, the that if you just thought the right thoughts about Jesus, or, or, then you were automatically in God's uh, favor. Um, and the problem with this compartmentalism is that it, it meant to a Lutheran at the, at the time, and, and many other Reformed Christians as well, Bonhoeffer's family included, you would confess all the right things about Jesus. So you'd say everything, that he's the Son of God, he died for our sins. You'd say all the right things, um, but and you kind of believe that, believing that, would shape who you are as a person, um, but if you actually started to do some of the things that shows that it's shaping you, they would say, "Oh, that's you know, oh, you're going to church every Sunday. That's just that's just works. That's just something you feel like you have to do to please God." So, so it kind of created this like, think right, but don't do anything, or somebody might think you're actually trying to earn your own salvation. Like it created this weird dichotomy where the whole country was Christian, but not very many people went to church. And, and which kind of starts to sound familiar. Um, so basically, a life of faith simply meant that you had the right thoughts about Jesus, and that was kind of it. Like you just had to think.
think the right thoughts. You don't do anything, otherwise somebody will think it's not faith. You're just trying to earn your salvation. So you don't really do good deeds. Somebody might think that's piety, and you're just trying to prove to God that you're good. Like, so you just have to think the right thoughts. That's really it. Um, and they're supposed to shape you, but you can't really let it shape you outwardly, or nobody would think you're a Christian. Um, so Christianity was kind of reduced to, to just a philosophy or a worldview. That was really it. Um, there was really nothing more. So Barnhart grew up with a really solid biblical education, but never really went to church, except on, you know, kind of special occasions, holidays and things. Um, and uh, the strange dichotomy would have a lot to do with Bonhoeffer's theological work as he, uh, as he kind of grew older. Um, and really, even through World War II, because the atmosphere of Germany's theology um, as a whole was created um, uh, where everyone seemingly believed uh, the right things, but those beliefs didn't really demand any particular lifestyle. They didn't really demand anything from you. You just had to think all the right thoughts. And that environment was very important when, when the kind of pre-World War II atmosphere uh, stepped into, uh, kind of came into place. So, um, so the church was kind of powerless once, um, once the Nazi movement started because they had created this atmosphere where they don't really do anything other than think the right thoughts. They don't really have uh, that much impact on the culture. Um, which was uh, not really good for um, uh, for the nation, especially once this guy kind of steps up who has some really good ideas um, for Germany and, and, and has some kind of contemporary uh, thoughts um, to help Germany. So, uh, I, I, we are going to go back and talk about how kind of Bonhoeffer became Bonhoeffer. I do want to pause for a second and discuss this environment that Bonhoeffer lived in. Because um, it's really, really important. Because uh, it, it turned out to be um, the same environment that allowed Germany to follow a guy like Hitler. Um, after World War One, the Treaty of Versailles kind of left Germany penniless. After World War One, the, the kind of Allied nations just stripped Germany bare and kind of left it where it couldn't rebuild. Uh, uh, not only did they demand reparation from Germany, but Germany was left with no industry whatsoever. They had to allow French inspectors into every lab and every factory to make sure they weren't making munitions or raising an army. Um, and so uh, what was happening was every time they would innovate something, France would steal it because they were allowed into everything. And then they would steal it and they would make it and Germany would have no exports because now everybody else is making all the same stuff. So Germany um, uh, is, is really struggling. Just to give you an idea, this is not an exaggeration. Look it up. In 1922, uh, just after the end of the war, a loaf of bread in Germany cost 160 uh, German marks. Um, and the conversion uh, wasn't dollar for dollar for us. But 160 German marks bought a loaf of bread. One year later, at the end of 2023, that same loaf of bread, I'm not kidding you, 160 German marks was now 200 billion German marks. That's how bad inflation had gotten. At the end of the war, uh, 83 German marks equaled a dollar. So what you could buy for a dollar in America cost you 83 German marks to buy. By the end of 2023, that same American dollar, it took 5.7 billion marks to equal one dollar. Um, look at what's that? Yeah. This case, 2023? Yeah, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Economists call it hyperinflation, but actually most of them say it needs its own name because it's a, it's a total historical anomaly for 
like literally the German mark became worth nothing. Like nobody had, you know, it's almost having to re- reduce to a barter system just to get a little bit of bread because nobody had, you know, 400 billion German marks laying around for one loaf of bread. Um, so suffice it to say, Germany was in really bad shape. Um, and it's, you know, it's people were hurting um, when this kind of strong, charismatic leader with a dope little mustache um, shows up with answers to all the problems. Um, I mean, to think, you know, we, we always like, how do you follow a guy like Hitler? You know, if you create a bad enough situation, people will follow almost anybody. I mean, if you, if you allow situations to get terrible and somebody shows up who has answers, um, people will uh, follow. Um, and at first, you know, his answer seemed good. At first, you know, he didn't, like, show up and say, you know what, I think we should start by killing Jews. That's not how it started. You know, at first he was like, we need to rebuild this nation and get out from under the thumb of these people who are crushing us and, and build Germany back up. Well, who's not on board for that, right? Um, and, and then when he did start to show some issues with certain groups, man, it seems like a small price to pay to get out of this terrible situation, to get your country back on its feet again. I mean, really, um, when Hitler was first rising to power in Germany before he was kind of on the world stage at all, when he was just this, this politician like every other politician, um, the, and, the, and the bulk of the German nation was starting to swarm to him, um, all he had really proposed was that Jews no longer be allowed to hold office in the German church or in the government. Like, he wasn't, he was like, you know, we need a German church full of strong German people, and we need a government full of strong German people, and, and maybe we just don't let these people serve in those positions. There's nothing wrong with them having their own Jewish church. Because most Jews in Germany, this is another thing most people don't understand, most Jews in Germany were Christian at the time. There wasn't like a whole lot of Jewish practicing Jews in Germany at the time. Most of them had converted to Lutheranism. They were just, uh, they were just Jewish in descent. Um, so most of these are Jewish Christians, and a lot of them were pastors and had been for generations. And, and Hitler stepped in and was like, you know, maybe we don't let these guys be pastors anymore. Or, or let them be pastors with their own kind of Jewish-based churches. But we need a strong German church. Um, so we'll put Germans in charge. And same with our government. That was really all he was asking. Most Germans were like, well, that sounds reasonable. You know, we're, we're not like hurting anybody. Just let them have their own church, separate but equal. Right? Um, which never works. Um, so at first, he was just saying they needed a strong uh, Germany and that there was no reason why Jews, Jewish Christians couldn't worship in their own Jewish Christian churches. Um, so it's not really that Jews are bad, at least not at first. I mean, he didn't say that at first. Uh, it's just that Germany needed a strong German church. So, um, so all he was asking was to kind of exclude a, a few people from a few key positions. And most of Germany felt like that was a small price to pay to get Germany back on its feet again. All we got to do is it's kind of hurt a couple, not even hurt, just mark a couple people and, uh, and we'll be able to build things back up. Um, so Hitler didn't come out of the gates, you know, asking for a holocaust. Uh, he was just asking for a tiny bit of compromise, just a little bit of, of compromise. So ultimately, when, when you, when what hit Bonhoeffer against Hitler in the very beginning was the fact that Bonhoeffer had grown to believe that virtue matters. That doing the right thing because it was the right thing matters. And, and even though uh, something was, was only a little wrong, and it, and it might lead to some good, if it was wrong, it was all the way wrong. And Bonhoeffer um, 
believe that. And so from day one, when everybody else thought Hitler was amazing and he was going to really help Germany, Bonhoeffer was like, but we can't do it this way. This is not the right way. Like when he still seemed like he was going to be kind of this shining star, Bonhoeffer stepped out against really even all of his own people to say, no, we cannot do it like this. So in a country where uh, the majority of Christians had reduced their faith to just this kind of philosophical ascent and had no real bearing on life, the economic atmosphere was so bad that everyone was looking for any hope at all. And this leader shows up who's willing to stand up to the Allied powers um, who, was, who were kind of enforcing this tough economic time. Um, where on earth did Bonhoeffer kind of find the strength to go, I don't care how good it looks, it can't be good if it starts the wrong way. Um, and that's what we're going to start about. Because he believed Galatians 3 was real when it says, for all our children of God through faith in, uh, for you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and all have been united with Christ in baptism, uh, or who have been united with Christ in baptism, and put on Christ by putting on his blood. There is no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are one in Christ Jesus, and now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children. But Abraham, Bonhoeffer believed that, so from day one, he could not understand why. Jewish Christian and the Gentile Christian were any different whatsoever. He was like, what is free basic Christian? There are no longer Jews or Gentiles. And so, anyone on offer did not like Hitler. Uh, because early in the movement, when Germany was getting behind uh, Hitler, most of the German church went to. Uh, they were totally lined up behind him. And, and even the pastors who had eventually joined Bonhoeffer. Beginning was totally behind him. They thought Bonhoeffer was one of those coops sitting on the corner and screaming about the end of the world. When everything was looking up, you know, they didn't understand. Um, uh, and it might be good for Germany, Bonhoeffer said, but it's biblically wrong, it's all the way wrong. Um, and so, uh, uh, how did he get there? How did he grow up to be that guy uh, that's willing to take that stand? No one else was. Well, William very young, Bonhoeffer proved um, incredibly adept at understanding and articulating uh, theology. He was an incredible student. Um, even in a house full of geniuses, almost every Bonhoeffer that, uh, that made it to adulthood you know, was a genius of some sort. But theology was not his original ambition. Um, actually, his true gift was music. Um, he was uh, an accomplished classical pianist and flautist. Uh, you got to do this music. Um, and, uh, but he also played almost every instrument there was passably well, which to us probably means like a virtuoso, but, um, but his, his real instrument was piano and, and flute. Um, and so his whole entire family just assumed he would have a career as a professional musician, which in Germany at the time was a, a well-respected and viable um, career. Um, so it was a shock to almost everyone except his grandmother when Bonhoeffer announced this matter of factly to the family one night at dinner that he would uh, be leaving to study theology um, and enter the academic world. Uh, nobody in his family respected that. Of course, that was funny. As, you know, like, did you just be a musician or something? Like, today, if you're like, I want to, you know, I want to get into theology and teach at this university, you know, like, I want to be a rock star, you know. And they're like, can't you just be a musician or something? Um, so nobody in the family except his grandmother kind of respected this decision. Um, 
themselves in line with reality, which is that Christ cannot be divided. Um, yeah, so that's the bottom line. Um, the Bible would travel to, to many places after this, and would only deepen this belief in this theology. Um, and uh, his travels happened because he had a bit of a problem. In Germany at the time, you couldn't teach as an official professor or really be ordained. You couldn't officially receive your doctorate and be ordained until you were 25. And he got all the work done by 21, but he had some time to blow. And so he spent some time traveling. He went to Barcelona um, and did ministry work and kind of traveled through the area and ironically fell in love with bullfighting, of all things. Um, this, like, deep thinker who had just spent the last, you know, several years in this intensive theological Cloud and conversation, fell in love with bullfighting. Then he couldn't get it up. He went every time um, there was a bullfight. And, and even though he would turn into a pastor, they loved seeing the bulls die, which is horrible. Um, but he also wrote about how much he learned about human nature in these bullfights. He couldn't believe how fickle a crowd could be. He'd be like, one second, they're like booing the bull because it's, you know, it's the way it is. It's not really. Um, 
So he, he traveled a little bit more in that area, and this had woken something up in him, feeling like this, this exclusion that had happened was robbing the church of something. The church proper was losing something in this division. Um, and so, after a little bit more trouble, he still had a little over a year to blow, and so he just he, he wrote and got a position in America as basically a new pastor. He was uh, going to be lecturing and teaching young people in New York. Um, and many scholars believe that while in America, when Bonhoeffer first kind of uh, had a personal relationship with Jesus, um, happens while he's in America. Uh, he obviously had a deep theological understanding, but this is when he really meets Jesus personally for the first time. Um, and when many of his convictions that kind of led to the activists that stood up against Hitler later uh, were created. While in America, um, he's kind of interning uh, as, as a leader um, at this big uh, mega church, and was not at all impressed with any of the theological discussions happening in America. His letters home at that time are absolutely hilarious, because uh, he said often, there is nothing, nothing happening theologically here. Like, these people are divided, debating about nothing but politics. This is like the you know, late 1900s, and he's like, all they talk about is politics. Nobody talks about the Bible. He's like, I've heard endless debates about whether the Bible is real or not, is true or not, but nobody talks about what's in it. Like, they're fighting over it, but not actually getting into it. Um, he, and he kept trying to stir up these theological conversations, and nobody even had the framework to talk about it. And he was like, there's just, there's just nothing happening theologically here. Um, he's like, they're all consumed with politics, and nobody likes to talk about the Bible. Again, but, um, but, uh, so he, so he's, he actually wrote home, like, there's no way I'm going to make it the full year. I'm crying out. This is the most kind of intellectually dead time he had ever had. Like, from going from the deep postgraduate discussions he was having to the deep kind of history and, and, uh, and, and culture that was in Barson, Spain, and, and Italy to this kind of adolescent teenage argument happening in America. He was like, I'm not going to make it a year. I got to come home. Um, and it was about this time that somebody invited him to a church to visit a church in Harlem. Um, and this was kind of at the height, the golden era of Harlem when jazz was the hot thing and, and Harlem was kind of this glittery um, place. And so he goes to a, an all African American church um, in Harlem and he visits and was absolutely blown away. Where he was kind of inspired by the reverence of the Catholic Church he found, like, real passion for Jesus and real kind of emotional connection to Jesus in this black Harlem church. And he also found music. As a, uh, a classical pianist, he had never really heard, like, rhythm and emotion like he heard in Harlem and was completely, like, caught up. This has the whitest of white guys standing in the back of his Harlem church just weeping at the, at the gospel music that was um, being played. Um, while there, he bought every black gospel album he could get his hands on, and for the rest of his life, they were his most prized possessions. He clung to them. In fact, he later um, led a uh, seminary for the what's called the Confessing Church, which is this kind of underground church that started in Germany. Um, and he was in charge of all the seminarians, these very white, very German, very intellectual very stuffy 
um, seminarians, and part of their their education was to spend at least 30 minutes a day listening to black gospel music in a classroom. So you've got to picture like 30 just really white Germans in suits and ties sitting in desks, like rocking out to black gospel music um, every single day for 30 minutes. Um, but he, he felt it was absolutely essential to connecting to God was to have like real music that moves your soul. Um, so the church of Holland was the first time in his life that this kind of young theological savant um, ever regularly went to church. Before this, he couldn't um, he was so caught up in the theological, the, the intellectual world, he couldn't really find any value in just going and attending um, church. But once he started going to the Harlem Church, he could not come up with a reason to stay away. He couldn't be there enough. Anytime he wasn't serving in his church, he was in the Harlem Church multiple times a week, um, just worshiping and spending time um, with the people. Uh, and so for the first time, he experienced regular church attendance. Fell in love with the people, he fell in love with the connection, he fell in love with the space that was being created. Um, he loved the people and the passion, the power, and he was moved by the whole thing. And the first thing he kind of got out of his head and got into the experience of the presence of God. Um, and he wrote a little about all the changes that this was working in his soul while he was there. Um, and this new love for uh, church and church people. And the connection that was happening um, uh, began to deepen that doctoral dissertation he had on the nature of church. He had written about it kind of intellectually. Now he was experiencing it. I couldn't wait to get home and publish um, this work because uh, he was understanding it more now than he did when he actually wrote it. But this also introduced him to America's Negro problem, as he called it. and wrote home often about one, one Sunday morning after church, Bonhoeffer invited a couple of his new friends um, from the Harlan Church to a cafe that he had fallen in love with and were, was refused service, obviously, um, for bringing in African Americans. They, they wouldn't be served in white cafes. Bonhoeffer was naive and clueless, you know, so everybody in America knew that, except for Bonhoeffer. So he strolls in with his black friends and they quickly asked him to leave. So of course the black friends are going, we told you this wasn't going to work. And he's like, I do not understand what's happening here. just totally didn't get it. Um, and he also, which rounded an off for him, he had been inviting people from the white uptown church to come down to Harlem with him, and none of them would come. And he didn't understand. Like, they were doing the polite thing. I'm, I'm busy. I can't, I, you know, make any excuses. And, and it wasn't until the cafe is there that he got it. These people do not mix. And he didn't understand why. Um, he had also invited several people from the Harlem church to come listen to the, his lectures and sermons that he was giving to some of the young people. Um, and the white church wouldn't let him in. And so, um, this baffled Bonhoeffer completely. He saw no reason that skin color would have any bearing on worship. He just couldn't even dream up a reason why skin color would have any bearing um, on worship or, or theological discussions, especially when you're both worshiping St. Jesus. Like, coming in from outside of it, it was completely illogical and completely you know, absurd to him that these people would not be worshiping see um, how the church was being weakened by this stance. And it was um, uh, it is kind of, it was, it's interesting to read his writing from a completely naive position of general of the history that, that brought this for him to try and wrestle with this concept. And it, and it does make racism seem silly um, when you read his stuff. 
But the worst part was you could see how much the body of Christ was missing because of this. Um, and, and saw it as a complete absurdity. Uh, and even more of this kind of doctoral dissertation sunk in, you know, that, that, uh, that our understanding of the church needs to be reworked. Uh, the second thing that happened while he was in America that really kind of shaped Bonhoeffer was he went to the movies. Uh, he and a buddy had a night to, to blow, and they went and saw All Spied on the Western Front, which was this uh, kind of breakout movie, really controversial, banned in a lot of places. Um, and there's a scene in it where uh, it's about World War One. There's a, there's a Uh, oh my goodness, trench, the trench warfare stuff. Um, there's a scene in one of those where a German soldier stabs a French soldier with a bayonet. And, and, uh, and you know, the French soldier falls down at first. The German soldier is like, Ah, oh, that's what you get, ah, oh, you know. And, and why can't you guys just, you know, they're, they're fighting. And then over the course of the scene, um, the German soldier, you know, starts to soften and talking as this Prince Solar is slowly dying and and over the course of the scene they find out they both have families and, and eventually the German soldier apologizes and by the end of the scene he's holding him and crying as he as this Prince Soldier dies and, and, and he's sorry that it that it happens and something in this rocks Bonhoeffer to his soul. Uh, the guy that was with him uh, wrote a letter home and was like he cannot be consoled. He just wept hours, um, something changed in him. And, and something deep uh, in Bonhoeffer at this moment, from this point on, he could not understand how, even in the context of war, a German Christian could shoot a British Christian. Um, he said the, the, the connection of, of Christ should be stronger than the connection of nationalism. And something in him uh, was turned completely upside down. He, he could not understand how the connection we have in Christ can, was not the biggest thing in our minds. How is this not the thing that's shaping us more than all these other forces? That should be much, much, much bigger. Two Christians should not be able to square off in warfare. Um, no matter who they're, what banner they're fighting under, the banner of Christ has got to be bigger. And so this, um, this really uh, kind of opened his eyes to how little impact the kingdom of God had on most people's lives. That it was just this thing they kind of nodded toward, but it didn't really shape any of their decision-making. Um, and again, his kind of doctoral thesis sunk even deeper, and he felt like that we have got to find a way to rework the church to make the church um, the, the thing that, not necessarily church attendance, but the church, our, our commitment to Christ, has to be central. Um, so he... Uh, um, so he, after this, um, he, he goes on with both this kind of almost pacifism, not like pacifism as like all, all war is evil, but more like I don't understand how war can happen if it could wind up being Christian against Christian. Like, um, and so his, his understanding of, of, uh, of war totally changed. Before that, it was Germans fight, that's what we do. And anytime Germany wins, it's good. Like that was just as deep as his understanding of war went. Uh, and now he's seeing the kingdom of God should be bigger than that, and that caused him a lot of discomfort. So between his 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 confusion over the white black problem in America that he couldn't understand, and this new issue of of 
of kind of warfare in the context of Christianity. And he came back from America kind of a mess. Like he was like, his whole world was upside down. He was kind of in a big deconstruction. I don't even know who I am right now um, because these things have to be uh, considered. And he was anxious to get back to his doctoral work and kind of rework this thing um, with kind of all this new experience um, as to what the church was supposed to be. He just knew that it, it was not what it was supposed to be. Um, and so um, he quickly returned uh, home and found uh, that he had much bigger fish to fry. Germany was a mess. I mean, it actually wasn't a mess. It was getting better because Germany was following this new guy named Hitler and throwing their support um, at him. And so what's ironic is when Bonhoeffer got back, um, he was asked to preach uh, this election day sermon. It was really common for preachers to preach on election day, and they put it out over the radio. And so it was the day Hitler was elected as chancellor, Bonhoeffer's on the radio preaching a sermon. And he doesn't really know Hitler other than what he's read in the papers and people have talked about. He doesn't necessarily have a problem with Hitler yet, because Hitler really hasn't stood for much other than just cheering on Germany. Um, but uh, but Bonhoeffer preaches a sermon on the, the problems with the Fuhrer principle. The Fuhrer principle was this kind of theolo- philosophical principle in Germany um, of the, the power of, of the strong leader. The word Fuhrer in German just means leader. Um, at this point, Hitler wasn't even using the word to talk about himself. Um, so it's kind of ironic that Bonhoeffer is the one that kind of put that word out there. But Bonhoeffer's thing was no true Fuhrer leads for himself. The, the true Fuhrer is God, and any true leader humbly leads, pointing toward the glory of God. And that, you know, the idea that, that Germany is trying to follow a strong leader when we've always had a strong leader in Christ um, is off. And, and so, uh, so he's basically, before Hitler's even a Fuhrer, um, preaching against everything Hitler stood for. And earlier that day, Hitler gained control um, over the... Uh, and nobody knows if this was a coincidence, if it was Hitler, like this is just kind of... But uh, about three-fourths of the way through Bonhoeffer's radio address, all the radio signals went down, and they cut him off. So he didn't get to finish. And so in this weird irony where he had written the message, his, his message he was going to give long before Hitler was elected, Hitler gets elected on the same day he's preaching this message, and the battle lines are already drawn. Hitler has a bullseye on Bonhoeffer's head, and Bonhoeffer's already kind of declared where he stands on everything Hitler's about to stand for. And so, um, and so the uh, battle lines are drawn between Hitler and Bonhoeffer, and almost immediately after taking office, um, Hitler... Um, starts to make some big changes. He instituted uh, censorship of all media, um, and he started, like I said, excluding the Jews just from these couple of offices. And uh, for Bonhoeffer, whose brother-in-law was uh, a Jewish, a Christian Jewish pastor that had Jewish roots and was one of his best friends, this was not okay. To tell his brother-in-law you can't be a pastor when his brother-in-law was an amazing pastor just because you're Jewish did not make sense to Bonhoeffer. He couldn't uh, uh, and then for the first time, uh, really early, before anybody really declared war on the Jews, 
Bonhoeffer drew the connection, like, this is almost as stupid as America's Negro problem. Like, we cannot divide over stupid things. It didn't make sense over there. It doesn't make sense here. And so a lot of people think if he hadn't experienced that in America, he may not have been so primed and kind of keyed in on this idea of separate but equal, um, because he didn't understand separate but equal in America either. And, and it didn't make any sense to him over here either. So when it started happening in Germany, he's screaming foul long before it even looked like a foul. He was like, this is stupid. Like, we, it, it's, it's not the way to go. Um, but for the most part, at this point, Hitler's doing nothing but good. He's, he's really helping um, Germany. Uh, he basically kicked all the, the factory inspectors out, like, and closed the factories down. And at that point, nobody wanted a world war again. Like, they had, everybody was just starting to recover. And so even though Hitler's making, like, bold moves, like, no, we just decided not to let you guys in anymore. Nobody's going to send troops in. You know, they're like, okay, well, don't build anything you're not supposed to. You know, shook their finger at him. And and, uh, and so, of course, the Germans are like, it was that easy? We would have done that a long time ago, you know. But, uh, but everybody's thinking, man, this guy's amazing. He's doing great things. This is really going to help. Um, and it seemed like he was playing fair. Now we know he wasn't. He was burning things down and blowing things up and blaming it on the communists to give him an excuse to step in with the SS and kick out the communists. Like, he was playing games behind the scenes, but nobody knew that. It looks like he's playing fair and helping the country. <coughs> but Bonhoeffer had fallen in love with the Catholic people in Spain and, uh, and, and Rome. He had fallen in love with African Americans in America and, and, and all the different people. And he could not understand why Germany would ex- exclude anybody. Um, and so he starts... Uh, putting out uh, stuff against Hitler super, super early in the game. Um, and, uh, and he's speaking out every chance he gets against the changes that are happening, and especially directly against this new leader um, and the laws that he's making, especially about the Jews. Um, at this point, nobody's on Bonhoeffer's side. Even the guys who would later come to his side, we're like, dude, you got to be quiet. You have to stop. This does not make any sense. Like, uh, they thought he was just, you know, kind of crazy, standing out in the wilderness by himself. Um, it took a long time for people to join him. Uh, and I wish I had time to track all the changes that happened once he was back in Germany, but I, I, I don't. We're just going to hit a couple high points. Um, first, once the Nazis took over the German church, um, which they did eventually take over the German church uh, and took over all the seminaries, Bonhoeffer helped to start what they called the Confessing Church, which was this kind of underground um, conglomerate of resistance Christians um, who were really only for one thing. They, they made this confession, the Barman Confession, that was basically all they wanted was to remove the restrictions on the Jews. Like That was all they were saying. Was, we, these are Christians. These are believers. These are people who love Jesus. They have to be allowed in the church. Like, and that's really all the Confessing Church wanted at first. Um, but, uh, uh, but the, the German church wouldn't go for it. And so um, to train up new pastors in the confessing church, they started a, a seminary called Finkenwalder um, to train these new seminarians. And this was kind of Bonhoeffer's opportunity, his first chance to incorporate all the best principles that he had kind of picked up, both in his study of what the church was supposed to be and in all of his travels. It was kind of his guinea pig, like his testing ground. Uh, to see if this stuff worked. And uh, he had elements of liturgy and monasticism 
um, in it, you know, with regular prayer times and, and things. Uh, Karl Barth, who is a theologian that Bonhoeffer most looked up to, called him and was like, it sounds like you're going toward a works-based theology, and I, I can't really get behind that. Like, the, the regular prayer times, and because you got to remember, a lot of the reformers at the time didn't even necessarily believe in the church that much. And here Bonhoeffer's putting in these things that look like they were from a monastery or a, uh, like, uh, like a, a, some kind of monastic things uh, from Catholicism. He also uh, instituted a lot of music, which, um, which most seminaries at the time didn't have any music. They were just intellectual places. And so he's got worship times built in, which had other people thinking. Uh, and they, they went out, made the seminaries go out and do good deeds and help people and serve each other. And they had other people going, man, that sounds like one of those piety movements. So he's kind of incorporating all these things that everybody else, you know, had compartmentalized and said, well, no, that's a Methodist thing. You can't do that. That's a Catholic thing. You can't do that. And he's trying to kind of blend it all into his understanding of what uh, church is supposed to be. And if you, and, and you want to read more about it, he wrote about it in his book, Life Together, um, which is a great book of, it's about his time in, in, in King and Walter. And I, I personally think he was he was back then starting to to incorporate some of the things that the church is just now starting to catch up to 100 years later. Like, and he was he was completely, there was nobody doing it at that time, trying to do this kind of ecumenical take the good from all of this and try to incorporate it rather than just focusing on the bad and excluding because of it. What if we incorporated all of this together and tried to make it work? Um, he was well ahead of his time. A hundred years later, there's still people wrestling with that and just now starting to see the value in it. Um, but the second thing I want to touch on is, uh, is that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a full-blooded Aryan German. Like, you could not get more German than this family. Um, his father was a well-respected German psychiatrist and neurologist. Um, his family had deep German convictions um, and exactly zero innate reasons to wind up in the Nazi crosshairs. Um, he didn't even have to agree with Hitler um, or back the Nazis at all, and he could have just, just cruised right through uh, the entire Holocaust era. This, this is simply a family that was never going to be targeted by the Nazis. Like, he had everything they were looking at. They were the model German family. Like, he had no reason um, to get on the bad side of Hitler. He didn't have to agree with him, and, and he could have just cruised through. Um, but uh, all he had to do was kind of keep his head down, really. Uh, but instead, he took a stand um, and ultimately was arrested, um, spent quite a long time in a concentration camp, and then the, the, a day or two before the Allied troops liberated the camp he was in, they hung him to make sure that he died because they knew the Allies were coming, um, so they hung Bonhoeffer. Um, in fact, uh, much later in the struggle, um, uh, or b before he was arrested, but kind of deep in it, just before he was arrested, uh, once they realized just how much effort Hitler was going to put into finding Bonhoeffer, um, the pastors of the Confessing Church pulled a lot of strings, rounded up a lot of money, and did to get Bonhoeffer out of Germany. And so they bought him a ticket, all the underground stuff to get him out. They snuck him out of Germany. It took a lot of coordination to make it happen. They brought him over to America, and immediately upon getting to America and being safe, he felt guilty that the rest of the church was suffering, and he got on the first boat, went right back in. 
But can you imagine being one of those pastors and Bonhoeffer walks in the door and she's like, oh, my goodness, you know what we went through? But they felt like if Bonhoeffer can live, the, the confessing church will live one way or another. Like most of it's in his head. He's the guy. Um, and so they snuck him out. But he couldn't do it. He, he came back in. And, and here's the deal. We're calling this, this year's series Saints in a Storm. And the first week we talked about Samuel, who was called by God at a very young age, uh, to, to and basically destined to be the man on the spot when Israel was switching over from one government to another. He was the, the hinge pin. It was, it was kind of democratically instituted by the people. We want a king. Um, and then, but navigated by God. And, and Samuel was just the, the man in the middle, you know, making it happen practically. So didn't really have much of a choice. He was called at a very young age for this purpose. Then last week we talked about Daniel Kalo who was just born and raised in a storm and just looked for the best thing he could do, which was reach out and bless kids. Um, but Bonhoeffer is different. Bonhoeffer chose his storm. He did not have to go through this. He did not have to go through a storm. Um, in fact, next week Esther is going to preach to us um, about a saint that's really dear to her heart um, who had a storm dumped in her lap. She didn't have a choice either. But this week is unique because... We're talking about a guy who had all the shelter in the world. You could not have gotten more sheltered than Bonhoeffer for this particular storm. He chose to enter the storm. Um, in fact, it, it seemed that nothing could keep him out of it. Um, from the moment the Nazis declared war on the Jews, they declared war on the gospel. And, and Bonhoeffer would not sit idly by and let that happen. So from day one, he engaged and stood for those who were being excluded. And would not allow that to happen. He didn't have to. He chose to, um, which is why um, I love him. The famous pastor, uh, German pastor, Martin Niemuller, um, who spoke out against Hitler later, but he was one of the guys telling Bonhoeffer to quiet down. Um, he wrote one of the saddest things ever written in that period. You've likely heard it. He said, first they came for the socialists, and I didn't speak out because I was not a socialist. Then he came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke out from day one. And I think this, more than anything, in kind of the rich tapestry of this theological giant, is what stands out to me about his life. Um, Because uh, it's what makes him the most like Jesus, in my opinion. Um, last week we talked about how Daddy Okalo faced death unafraid because he said, Jesus too died for us. Jesus faced death unafraid. Why would I be afraid? Bonhoeffer did the same thing. He said, Jesus left heaven. We call it the path of descent. That the path of Jesus is always downward. Uh, Philippians says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. To be like Jesus is to move from a place of comfort to a place of sacrifice and discomfort for others. We have a tendency to think that if, if God is blessing you and if, you're, and if you're in God's good graces, everything's going to go up and to the right, bigger, stronger, you know, uh, more and more blessings and more and more blessings and more and more blessings. But Je- Jesus generally went the other way. 
He moved toward the hurting, toward the downtrodden. He pushed against the powerful and the well-connected to heal the broken. And being like Jesus means that we tend to move toward pain rather than away from it. That's what it means to be like Jesus. It means to think of others first. To take up your cross isn't just to like do something painful or to live some some perfect Christian life that doesn't have any mistakes in it. To take up your cross means to choose to suffer on someone else's behalf. That's what Jesus did. He went to the cross for you and for me. He went to the cross for somebody else. And he said, now you take up your cross. Which means now you hurt for somebody else. Now you choose to bless somebody else. Now you choose the, the, the role of discomfort so that somebody else can be blessed. If we want to do Jesus, be like Jesus, that's, that's how we do it. So how do we respond to this? Please know I'm not suggesting like masochism. <laughs> like don't just go, go do something painful. I hope that helps. No, that's not. God also gives great joy and blessing. And if you're in one of those seasons, drink every drop and love it and enjoy it by all means. But, but true maturity, especially in the gospel, is to look outside yourself for the well-being of others, especially those who have no voice and have no ability to speak for themselves. Jesus did not leave heaven because he had to. He chose to. He chose to engage for you. I don't generally speak about political issues from the pulpit, but I have to do this one uh, because it jumped out at me as, as I mean, because it's affecting people in our church. Um, we have people in our church who are losing their jobs or, or scrambling to look for another job because of like the vaccine mandates. And I'm not making a stance on vaccines. I don't have a, I don't, that's, I don't, I would never do that from the pulpit. But, um, but right now we are excluding certain people because of, because of this. And it's hurting people in our family and our community, um, this issue. And, and, uh, and the, the scary thing is if, if you're in Bonhoeffer's position, if you're vaccinated, you can skate through. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to take a stand. You don't have to do anything. You, can, you don't even have to be for the mandates. You can just keep your head down. And, uh, and, and that's, that's easy. And I don't even know if I'm asking anybody to do anything. All, all I'm saying is these situations show up in our world all the time, where people are being excluded. People are being shunned, and they have no voice. They have no one to speak for them. It's so easy to go, yeah, it doesn't really affect me. That's not my problem. And, and that is not the Christian way. That is not the Jesus way. Bonhoeffer could have skated through. He could have said, man, that really sucks what's happening. Those people over there, it really shouldn't happen. And I'm kind of glad I'm a German right now. Like, he could have done that, but he chose not to. Sometimes we have to speak up for the people who, who are being excluded. Um, and we have to say something. So I'm not, I don't bring that up to ask anybody to do anything other than maybe pray and, and, and see what God tells you. Um, but uh, maybe Bonhoeffer needs to be kind of the patron saint of those who speak out for those who can't. Um, because that's, that's what he did. He paid the price for it. Um, He's always, almost always in my head somewhere. This guy is, is, uh, is one of the biggest voices in my head from the past, speaking into my present at all times. He's a constant resident in my story. And I love that he was too theologically liberal um, for the conservatives to really like. So today, the reason a lot of people don't quote him is because uh, he was too theologically liberal for the conservatives to quote him all the time and way too theologically conservative for the liberals to quote him all the time. So everybody like quotes him a little, but everybody's a little bit afraid to get too deep into him because he screws with everybody. 
um, which is uh, one of the things I love. Um, so neither side can claim him as theirs. He kind of sits in this weird middle, um, believes that the Bible is 100% true and should shape everything we do and, and the decisions we make, and, and that you can't just rely um, on reason. You have to obey the Scripture and stop defending it and just obey it with one of his words. The Scripture doesn't need to be defended. It needs to be obeyed. Um, but he also believed that to believe in the Scripture and not to be out in the world doing good for people and trying to help people was illogical. He believed in social justice and reaching out to help. And, and, uh, and so both sides love him and both sides hate him. Uh, but as I said last week, this month isn't just about me telling you about my heroes. Um, it's about finding yours. Who inspires you? Who, who's in your past? Who's the saint that went before you and, and opened doors um, for you and, and lives in your head? all the time driving you to do better. So I think it's important that we tell those stories. So if you, I challenge you to do this last week, find one of the saints in your story and tell somebody about it. If you did that, awesome. Find another one. If you forgot about it before you made it to those white doors like most of us do, um, then do that this week. Tell your kids or tell your friends, man, the story of this person who shaped your walk, who changed your life and, and spoke into it. Because I, I, that's what this month is for at OTCC is to, is to remember those people who who went before us and, uh, and did good. Um, amen?